If you would, for just a moment, you may be seated. If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel. Continue our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel that we're calling The King We Need. And we have seen in the book that God is the king we need. And yet, like Israel, we don't always choose the king we need. We choose kings like Saul. And we have seen in the book that Saul is a bad king. And for the most part, for ourselves, we choose bad kings. And throughout the book, we've seen that Saul is very much like ourselves. And one of the things we do is we make ourselves king. And because we're like Saul, we're not the king we need either. We need a better king than the one we see in our mirror. And we've seen in the book so far that God has anointed a better king that's coming. One that kills the giants for us, the giants we can't kill. One that is anointed by his spirit and who is defeating the enemies of God for us. And what we're seeing in the book, spoiler alert, is the king we need is Jesus. And isn't it good that Jesus has defeated our giants? Isn't it good that Jesus brings peace? Isn't it good that Jesus has defeated our worst enemies? Even as we just sung, so we were talking about being unholy, that there is nothing in us that can please God. If you stop there, that's really, really bad news. There's no hope there. That's why we kept singing. That's why we, that's why we finished the song. We didn't stop. Because the point of the song is, while God is holy, he has made a way for us to become holy. In Jesus, his righteousness. Trusting and believing in him, his death on the cross and his life for us. And he gives us the holiness of Jesus. And that's the king we need. And then on top of that, doesn't leave us alone in the world trying to figure out what sense does that make and how does that change my life? He, he gives us his word. He gives us the Bible to see over and over again this same story that Jesus is the king we need. And that's why we stand in reverence to the reading of God's word at this time. 1 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to read verses 25 through 29. Hear the word of Christ. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. 
So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went from there and lived in strongholds in En Gedi. Oh God, we pray that you would teach us according to your word as we have just said. That we would learn more today that Jesus is the king we need. That we would turn from all other kings. We would turn from trusting in ourselves. We would turn from putting our hope in other people, other systems, groups, organizations. And we would turn to Jesus, your son, your king, the one you have exalted from the grave who is alive and well at your right hand. He is the king we need. May we trust him today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jeremy, come to the coat room. Now, those words were spoken by my first grade teacher, Miss Mays. And those words, as I think about them, even from that moment on, have given me an uncomfortable feeling. You see, I grew up in a time where uh, in first, kindergarten, first, second grade, third grade, you still got what was called paddled, I guess we'll say. Now, that's going to freak some of you out, but you got disciplined in school in that way. And this was my first experience in the coat room. And my teacher was this sweet, nice lady. Uh, Still think fondly of her, except when I hear those words come to the coat room because they were marked by betrayal. I was confused, but I needed to obey those words. But I'd been led into class disruption by a a little red-headed, freckled-faced punk. Looked a lot like Opie Taylor. And he kept talking to me in class, and I'm a rules follower, so I was, I was trying not to get in trouble, and I was trying to pay attention, and this little punk, he, he sort of picked up on that, and he just kept poking and, and picking with me during class and trying to talk to me, and, and, and every time I responded, I would get caught. I would be the one, uh, hey, be quiet, and she would say, Jeremy, stop talking. Hey, quiet down back there. And over and over this happened one day, and finally, this kid, I I, I don't even remember seeing this kid anymore in elementary school, because the more I grew, I would have probably picked a fight with him and whipped his tail. But he grabbed me, and he burped in my face. And so I went to handle the situation, as any six-year-old would at that moment, And there the words rang out, Jeremy, come to the coat room. Now, here's the catch. His name was Jeremy, too. And when she said that, we looked at each other like, certainly she's talking about you, not me. At least that's what I was thinking. You're the one who has gotten me in trouble. And he said, okay, well, let's go together. So I start walking to the coat room. And I turned around, and the Judas figure in the story (laughs) is no longer walking with me. And if in Miss Mays' mind she thought it was the other kid, she paddled me that day, I guess for just being an idiot. (laughs) Because he never got in trouble at all. 
Nothing happened to him. And I, I remember thinking, what just happened? That makes no sense. As, as a little six-year-old, I, I remember the feelings of betrayal. And then trying to explain to my teacher, I didn't do anything and she didn't care. And I also lived in a time where if such a thing happened to you at school, such a thing happened to you at home. I will put it that way. And so I got sent home with a note and I remember walking up to my mom and, but I did nothing wrong. It wasn't me. And she wasn't having it. And so such a thing happened to me at home that day. But I, I remember that sort of gut punch where I couldn't talk myself out of it, where I was so angry at this little kid. And you can tell I'm still bitter about it. And if you're listening to this sermon, whoever you are, call me and let's reconcile. <laughs> but, but I remember the gut punch of injustice that this makes no sense that I'm paying the penalty for someone else, that I've been betrayed and no one believes me. And it, it was a lesson early in life that so much of life is that way, right? So much of life is marked by injustice. Even in our own minds, so often we're, I didn't do anything. What, what's going on to me? I don't deserve this. And so much of life is marked by betrayal. We, we have those friends, those, those that we love the most, that we're the closest to, are the ones that hurt us the most. And we, we can think back about, in, in our life, at times people have just turned their back on us. We can think back about people in the break room who have heard certain situations in our life and gathered information and used it against us to get the promotion we can think about ways in which we have felt the brunt of injustice, where we've been betrayed, where folks have exaggerated about us, where church members have said, don't take it personal, but we're going somewhere else. And you just feel like you've been punched. You, you just, you feel the sting of betrayal. Or that spouse that sets you down and says, I have something to tell you. And there's a story of betrayal. So much of our lives are filled with that. The older we get, we can look back and we feel sting of betrayal and injustice. And we're beginning to see that unfold in the life of David. And chapter 23 is marked over and over by betrayal, by injustice. And as we read this story, it is to grip us and it is to cause us an emotional response as we say, he's the king. He was anointed by God. He killed the giant. He's killed the Philistines. And now he's running for his life in the wilderness. Now he's running for his life from this selfish tyrant, Saul, who just wiped out 85 priests, who just raised to the ground the city of Nob, women, children, animals, because he hates David. David is the good guy. David is the hero. Why is he running for his life? And we see how the Bible unfolds over and over stories of betrayal, stories of injustice, and we're beginning to see that is what the kingdom is about so often. 
It fits in a bigger story of justice and goodness. But notice verse 1. Now they told David. Now, this telling David, telling Saul, telling others throughout the whole chapter is vitally important. We see words kind of fly around in this chapter. People are speaking, giving important information over and over. And, and, and the emphasis on words, the emphasis on verbal communication in this chapter is vitally important. Notice what they tell David. Behold, hey, let's stop. The Philistines are fighting against Kelah and are robbing the threshing floor. Now, this was a very fortified city. There were walls, gates around the city. This was a secure place. And the enemies of God, the Philistines, decide, we're going to raid that city. And they begin killing folks, and they begin taking the harvest. They begin taking their profits. They are pillaging this city. But notice David's response. Therefore, he inquired. Now, that word inquired is only used of the priest until now. Remember last chapter, the priest inquired for David. But here we see David has direct access to God. And so he's given a word, but he goes to God for a word. Notice, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Before I do this, I want to know that this is your will. And notice, the Lord said, they told David, he inquires, the Lord says, go and attack the Philistines and save Kalah. And the, the God speaking here to David is to shock us. All of a sudden, David has the same authority, the same presence, the same rights as the priest has. He has direct access to the Lord where he can speak to the Lord and the Lord speaks back to him. But notice verse 3, David's men said to him, behold, hold on, we didn't give you this information so we would do something about it. We gave you this information just so you would know and maybe worry about it, I guess. Behold, we are afraid in Judah. Now remember, they left Moab and they are in Judah. They are in the wilderness. They, they are running for their lives from Saul. And he says, how much more shall we go to Kalah against the armies of the Philistines? Why would we do that, David? Why would we risk our life? We're running from Saul. We're tired. We're worn out. We're a small, ragtag army. Why would we go pick a fight with the Philistines? Who cares about this city? They have gates. They have walls. They have soldiers. Why would we go there? Why would we risk our lives? And so what does David do? Notice, he inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise and go to Kalah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And we see the emphasis here. The, the words of men and the words of the Lord. What word is David going to obey? What word is David going to believe? What word is David going to follow? And he follows the word of the Lord. Notice, and David and his men went to Kalah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kalah. And so people speak, the men speak, 
David goes to the Lord for a word, and God speaks, and he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you this city. And David obeys the word of the Lord, and the promise is fulfilled. Now, remember what Saul is doing right now. Right now, Saul is wiping out Nob, a city full of priests, women, and children. And what is David doing? He's saving the people of God. And we see this horrible, bad, tyrant king, oppressive, just like the kings of the nations. And we see the king we need rescuing the people of God, inquiring of God, obeying the word of God. And then verse 6, And when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now remember, Nob, the priest's city, it's being destroyed. And all of a sudden, this rogue priest, he escapes and he makes his way to David. And what does he have? He has the ephod. Now, there is some debate about what exactly he has. But this would have been a part of the priest robe. And, it, and behind this, this robe would have been what was called the uman and thuman, which determined the will of the Lord. All that to say, he comes as the presence of the Lord as a priest. And he comes with the will of the Lord. He represents symbolically God's word to David. And, and notice verse 7. And it was told to Saul that David had come to Kelah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering the town and, this, and gates that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war down to Kalah to besiege David and his men. Now, we read that and we think, well, David is trapped. David has trapped himself. Was this really the word of God to David? Go to this city and now you're trapped in this city with gates and bars and you're in there probably celebrating a victory. Saul says, we've got him. Saul speaking to himself. Notice what he says. This is of the Lord. Saul thinks he still knows the will of God. He still thinks he understands God's will for his life, will for his kingdom. And he thinks at this time God's will as he goes to this city and he destroys David. He's speaking to himself. But we're to be mindful here. No, the presence of God and the will of God is with David. The priest is there. The, the presence and word of God is there. Verse 9. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar, priest, bring the ephod here. What does David do? Military strategy. Saul, we've got him. His own wisdom, his own words, speaking to himself. David goes to the Lord. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kelah to destroy the city on my account. And notice how David takes responsibility here. He's not pouting. I came down here to save these people, and now I'm trapped. No, he, he's taking responsibility. Saul's going to come destroy this place, and it is, it's because of me? Verse 11, will the men of Colossus surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Words, hearing. He's trying to determine the will of the Lord, but he goes to the Lord. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, yes, he will come down. Then David said, well, will the men of Kalah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Now, think about what's going through his mind. 
We had no business coming down here and saving this city. Y'all have gates and you have bars and it's a well-fortified city. And we came down there and we saved you. And now we're trapped. And the Lord is telling him, Saul's coming after you. Surely these people will not betray me. Surely these people will not turn their back on me. Notice, and the Lord said, they will surrender you. They will betray you. They will turn on you. And then David and his, then David and his men, who were about 600, now notice how his army is increasing here, arose and departed from Kalah, and, and they went wherever they could go. And, and this phrase is used to say, they scattered, and they're looking for a place of refuge. They're looking for a place of escape. But when, ta- when Saul was told... Notice, David had escaped from Kalah. He gave up on the expedition. Saul thinks he knows the will of the Lord, but he's only speaking to himself, and now he realizes he was a fool. This isn't of God. David has escaped. But notice the, the irony here. David rescues a people who would betray him. That makes no sense. What we think should happen here is sort of this, you know, Lord of the Rings finale. David's ushered into the center of town and exalted as the great king who rescues his people. But David has to hide away and find the priest and go, okay, tell me what to do next. Saul's coming to destroy us? What about the people we just rescued? And God says, oh, they'll betray you. You better get out of town. These people don't appreciate you, man. Get out. Now, that makes no sense. And nothing about David's life makes sense at this point, right? He's the anointed king. He killed the giants, but he's on the run. He rescues this people, and God says, yeah, and they're going to betray you. Isn't that what life's about so often? You serve people? Yeah, they're going to stab you in the back eventually. We feel that. We're scared of that. We live in the insecurity of that so often. Some of you are learning that about Christianity, You're learning that so much of Christianity is choosing to love the people you would normally hate the most, who have done you the most harm. You believe the gospel and all of a sudden you're told to love your enemies. And you realize you can't rage on social media. When you go to type in those comments, you go, oh, I'm a Christian now. Ah, can't say that. You can't just lash out in the checkout line at Kroger. You got 20 items here. It says 10, buddy. Get out of the way. You can't just say what you want. You, you, you can't do that. You, you, you are called to be gracious and kind and merciful to those who would do you the most harm. And that's a very difficult thing to embrace. But it is what the kingdom calls us to. It's what God has called David to. Some of you right now are trying to Figure out how you're going to reconcile with that relative who has deeply wounded you. And and when you believe the gospel and the Holy Spirit came to live within you, that's one of the first things God told you to do. Is call that person and let them know you want to restore the relationship. You want to reconcile. The person who's done you the most harm. So often God calls you to those places, those who would betray you, to serve those who would burn you. And and we ask, why? 
Why would that be the call of the kingdom? And why is David doing that? Jesus. Who did Jesus come to die for? Those who would betray him. Those who would turn their back on him. And it's a picture of grace. We see in the king we need, he saves traitors. And if you're like me, you look in the mirror and you go, there's the chief traitor. Even after you've believed the gospel and you made these commitments, I'm going to give my life to Jesus and I'm going to serve him and he's going to be my all in all. And then the temptation in your heart is to serve yourself and to do what you want. And you feel the tension of being a traitor so often. Isn't it good that Jesus loves traitors? You see, God doesn't call us to love those who would betray us because he has no context for that. God loves us who have betrayed him, who have sinned and rebelled against his authority. And that's why he calls us to do that. We, we see Jesus. He comes to his own, but his own do not receive him. We see Jesus moments before he is nailed to the cross by the people he came to save. What is he doing? He is washing, his, washing the feet of Judas. Judas. Nobody's naming their child Judas. Somebody probably has. And if you're here today, I'm sure that there's some redemptive quality in why you did that. And so we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But nobody does that. Why? Because Judas is the logo for betrayal. The name we all think about when we think about betrayal. Chief traitor. And what is Jesus doing? Getting down like a slave. Rubbing the scum off the bottom of his feet to say to you and I, it's good news he loves traitors because we betray him and he still died for us. But notice the text continues, verse 14, and David remained in the stronghold. So David is running for his life and you, can you only imagine 600 men scattering out into the wilderness and they're looking for a place to hide. There folks all around in villages who are hearing about this army out in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and it's going to be reported back to Saul where they are. So they're trying to hide. And they're in the hill country of Ziph. They're moving south. And notice Saul sought him every day. The, killing David is his mission. Every morning he gathers with his men. How are we going to kill David? How are we going to kill David? Where is he today? Have you heard where David is today? But God did not give him into his hand. God did not turn him over. God is the one who is rescuing him. In verse 15, David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness with Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh. And notice this beautiful word. And he strengthened his hand in God. So Saul's son, Jonathan, has given his rights and authority over to David. Remember a few chapters ago, they make a covenant in blood. And Jonathan says, you're my king. And he's turned from Saul and he's turned to David. And he hears David's on the run. And people are reporting to Jonathan, yeah, he's in Horash. And what does Jonathan do? He risks his life and he goes out to the wilderness and he strengthens his hand in God. He encourages him. And in verse 17, he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And you shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you. Now, what he's saying there is I, I will 
I will serve you. I will play second to you. You're my king, not even my dad. And so we see almost a godly betrayal here with Jonathan, where he betrays the kingdom of his father for the kingdom of God's king. He turns from that king and he says, no, I'm giving my allegiance to you. And he says, Saul, my father, knows this. This is what's driving him crazy. This is what keeps him up at night. This is why he gets up in the morning. It's because he knows you're God's king and he is trying to kill you. But I'm here to strengthen your hand in God. In verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horash and Jonathan went home. So in this story of betrayal, we are given a picture of one who cannot betray David. He made a covenant with David. And notice how it's changed from they told, they said, the Lord said. And now David sees. He sees God's promise in his friend, Jonathan. The one who stood before David and they cut the animals in half. And he said, David, I'm surrendering my kingdom to you. And if I don't serve you, may it be like the animals before us. May there be blood on my head. You are my friend. You are my king. And I will serve you. And Jonathan says, let's do it again. I want to remind you how committed to you I am. I want to remind you how loyal I am to you, David. And they cut another covenant. And this is what we see here. We talk about gospel friendship, kingdom friendship. And, and here is a picture of it. It's what David sees. He's heard the promise of God. He hears God's word to him. And now he sees God's promise in his friends. And that's what we're to be as friends in the kingdom. We are to be the presence of one who will not betray. And when people see us in the wilderness, running for their life, struggling, on the brink of disaster, they see you, their friend, and they're reminded of the promises of God. They're reminded of one who cannot betray them. I want to plead with you to choose this for your life. So often we talk about friendship and we talk about these things, and you right now are thinking about other people who should be a better friend to you. That's not the point. The point is, how are you going to be a better friend? Are you going to remind others of the promises of God? Are you going to choose this for yourself? Are you going to say, it's not about my kingdom. I care more about you than myself. Can, can you look at anyone in your life other than yourself and say, I care more about their happiness than mine. I care more about them knowing and walking with Jesus than even my own sanctification at times. I want them to defeat their sin. I want them to know grace and mercy more. And I'll do whatever it takes that they might know it. Is there anybody in your life who you would, you would say that? Well, pick somebody. Pick somebody and start believing these things and doing these things for them. Gospel friendship. I care more about you than I do me. I care more about your kingdom than myself. And be literally the presence of God's loyalty. The truth of the gospel is in Jesus Christ, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. 
And we are called to be the tangible expression of that in one another's life. In a world where there is so much betrayal, we are to look around and see people who will not betray us and they remind us of Jesus who cannot betray us. Do you have that in your life? Are you that for others in your life? Pursue others. And not just with this, how's it going? Hey, how you doing, brother? That's not what we want here. Sometimes people ask me, hey, how's it going? And, and I have this weird quirk where what I'm thinking and feeling just comes out my mouth all the time. And so I'll say, hey, it's going really bad right now. And people, oh, you're the pastor. I have no idea what to say to you right now. And they turn and they walk away. Now, what I need in that moment and what you need when you're vulnerable and you're honest and you tell people it ain't going so well is the promise. Just the promise. Hey, buddy, Jesus loves you. He's, he's going to walk with you through this. That's what folks need. See, we think we have to be sharp. Oh, my word. You, you told me that you're, you're struggling with depression. I've never read a book on depression. Oh, my word. You told me you're discontent. You told me that your kids are a mess. You told, oh, my word. What am I supposed to do? I need to go find a blog about parenting. And I need to come up with five steps for being a better mom. No, that's, that, that's not what God's calling us to do. What does Jonathan do here? He reminds David of the promise. It's, it's that simple. David, you're running for your life. Saul may kill you. He can't. Why? God promised that he's going to keep you. God's not going to turn his back front on you. And I'm here to remind you of that. And that's what folks need. This may kill me. So often when, when people tell me their issues, and I try to be the expert, the professional, okay, one plus one equals two. I can fix your problems right now. They look at me like, I didn't want you to tell me how to fix it. I just wanted you to tell me that you care. I just wanted you to tell me that you're here. And then I got even better news. I'm here and God's here. And Jesus ain't leaving. He'll be here to the end. And that's what we speak into one another's life is the gospel. We're deceived into thinking that we can't just share the gospel with people who are struggling. But here's the reality. We can give all kinds of tips, all kinds of advice, all kinds of tricks of the trade. But if it's not the gospel speak, being spoken in other people's life, it falls short. Because all the tips and all the tricks and all the counseling and even all the other people, they will leave us empty at times. But the gospel won't. And so we've got to be bold in stepping into people's life and saying, hey, I know you sinned. But Jesus died for your sins. And I know you're struggling, but Jesus overcame the grave. And there's an eternal kingdom that is coming to us that is unshakable and, and that will not fade away. And it's all ours in Jesus. And if you don't believe it right now, I will stand here with you and I'll believe it for you. I'll believe it for you for a little while until you believe it. And I will keep telling you it's true. And I will be the gospel friend here with you. It says Jesus ain't leaving. And I'm not leaving. Notice verse 19. 
Then the Ziphites went to, up to Saul at Gibeah, and they said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds? And so the Ziphites, these desert people we might say, they hear David is running for his life in the wilderness, and they don't want any part of this. David's out here in the wilderness. Saul, he's willing to kill the priest. Saul, he's willing to kill the people of Kalah. And now Saul will kill us. And so we want Saul to know we're not protecting David. And so they go give Saul this military intelligence here. Isn't David in the stronghold of Harash and on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jessamon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire. Come down, and, and our part shall be to surrender in, him into the king's hand. And so they make alliances with Saul. Now, here's the catch. The Ziphites are of the tribe of Judah. They're supposed to serve David. They're David's people. They're David's cousins. They're the folks David gathered with at the family reunion. And what are they doing? They're making alliances with Saul. Hey, we know he's of the tribe of Judah, but we don't want any part of him. You come on down here. We won't tell anybody you know about it. And you can have a sneak attack on him. You come on. Notice how it's described here, your heart's desire. What you want more than anything, Saul, we have for you. And we'll make a deal with you. We'll turn him over. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. Isn't it so, isn't it so funny? But Saul says that. The Lord left Saul a long time ago. And here he is still delusional about his power. May the Lord bless you. Well, here's the deal, Saul. They're betraying the king God had anointed. The Lord ain't going to bless them. And you have no power to say that. And notice, for you have had compassion on me. Remember last week, Saul's just pouty. Feels sorry for me. Nobody's telling me. Everybody's turning their back on me. And David's going to kill me and nobody will tell me. And now the Ziphites, the sweet, precious Ziphites, they had compassion on me. Verse 22, go, make yet more sure. Still notice Saul doesn't trust them. Even in Saul's mind, he probably thinks it's a trap. You better go make sure, though. Know and see the place where his foot is. I want, I want some hardcore evidence where David is. And who has seen him there. You bring in eyewitnesses. Because this dude's made me look like a fool. A few chapters ago, he was naked in the streets, mumbling like a prophet. He's gone to city after city to chase him, and he's left empty-handed. He keeps making me look like a fool. So you better give me some eyewitnesses. Notice he is very cunning. He uses words of David that are used of Satan. He, he's, he's wise, but, but, but he's also, he he's also can't be trusted. He's cunning. Verse 23, see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. He's like a snake crawling in and out of rocks in the wilderness. And you come back to me with sure information. Then... I will go with you. I will go. And Saul has not gone with anybody to this point, but he is so set on killing David, he's finally saying, I'm going to go in myself. And if he's in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of those in Judah. Of all your people, of all your people, we will find the one and we will kill him together. Verse 24, and they arose and they went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon. Now if you've ever watched a 
maybe a country and western movie and they're chasing out in the wilderness and they go into this place where there's these roads that go deep down into valleys and then there's these high walls to the side. That's where David is trekking to. And he goes out and, and the text says in the Arabah, the south of Jessamon, and Saul and his men went to seek him in this place. And David was told, so he went down into the rock. He just goes deeper and deeper into these rocky wilderness places, and he's living in caves in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David. So Saul's not giving up. He just keeps going deeper and deeper into these rocky wilderness places. And then he finally finds him. And Saul went on one side of the mountain. And David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. So David and his men, they're camping out on one side of the mountain. And Saul says, I've got him. And they begin to trek up one side of the mountain. And when they get to the top, imagine Saul, I finally got him. He's going to be at the top of the mountain because they're trying to protect him from what's below. And we're coming over the top. And I, this spear that has missed him four times, I'm going to pierce him in the back of his head with this spear. But notice, David was hurrying to get away. And as Saul and his men were closing in, David and his men, they were, they were there to capture them. They're headed down the hill to capture them. But verse 27, a messenger came to Saul and said, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Back home, Saul. The Philistines, they are invading all of our land and they are taking over the whole land now. And all of a sudden, Saul returns from pursuing David and he went against the Philistines. Therefore, the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, all of a sudden, it looked like despair, destruction for David. And Saul gets what? A word. Someone says, the Philistines, they're raiding the land. And notice, all of a sudden, Saul's heart's desire changes in the moment. He hasn't cared about the Philistines. He's been sending everybody else to fight them. He's only cared about David. And all of a sudden, national interests are his priority. And David escapes. What's going on there? God is fulfilling his promise to David. In a situation where it, it looked like despair, God is still fulfilling his promise. And notice the term, rock of escape. It, it literally means a rock of division, where God divided David from his enemy, Saul. David's on one side, Saul's on the other. And it's a picture of God being the stronghold, God being the refuge, God is teaching David in the wilderness here that God is the refuge, even in the most dire circumstances. And David is able to look around out in the middle of nowhere and see this massive rock. David, who, who is running from Saul, and all of a sudden, nobody's chasing him. And he turns around, and there is the mountain. And no longer can he hear his enemies on the other side. And he looked at that mountain, and he probably unleashed into praise. He probably said things like he said in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and fortress, 
and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my cave of defense. Like he said in Psalm 781, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given me the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. God did this. It wasn't just, it just so happened. It wasn't just coincidence. God allowed David to get to the point where he is about to be destroyed and then God rescues him with this military intelligence that the Philistines are invading. It is God who has done this. So David turns to the Lord and says, you are my stronghold. You are the rock of my refuge. Now, how do we believe that? The same way David believes it. Throughout throughout the chapter, we see they said, he said, Saul said, we also see this picture of strength in hands. We, we also, we, we've heard of David's hand. We've heard of Saul's hand. The priest had in his hand an ephod. We've said, God has said, I will not deliver you into his hand. And the point here is the hand of the Lord is David's refuge. And it is the word of the Lord, the promise of the Lord, that is David's refuge. All of these other words will betray you. All of these other words are, are words of betrayal. But it is the promise that Jonathan has brought to him that God fulfills here. And he is saying to David out in the middle of nowhere as he looks at this giant rock, I am your rock of refuge and I will never betray you. God will always do what he says for his king. Now, one of the problems that we have at this point is David would find himself in another rock many years later. David would find himself in his own tomb. We read in Acts where Peter stands up to preach and he says, you hear all these promises of this great king, but David is dead See, there was a day when death creeped in on David and he wasn't rescued. David's bones are rotting right now. And why is that? Because as we'll find out, the story keeps going. David was a traitor. David was a sinner himself. And so even as we read here, God is a refuge. His word is a refuge. There is good news for us because even in that moment, God saves a traitor, one who sins. And, and, and the good news for us is the rock of division out in the wilderness, the rock of refuge, isn't the only rock that God has used to rescue. You see, David's bones are deteriorating. But the rock outside of Jerusalem where the bones of Jesus were laid, are empty. And that is the rock of refuge for us. That's where we go to. That's where we run to. That's when we hear of this rock of refuge. We think of a rock that is empty. You see, we live in a world where all these words are flying around. People are going to make promises to you that they will not keep. This is a world of broken contracts. This is a world where people, the, the boss may say to you, I've got great plans for you. 
And then things change a few months later, and you are disappointed, and you feel betrayed. There, there are folks who are going to sin against you, and you're going to feel the brunt of injustice. And in that moment, you are to remember the rock of refuge. In that moment, you're actually to also think about your own sin. You see, we look at other people so often and we say, they turn their back on me because they don't want what's best for me. And in that moment, ask yourself the question, do you really want what's best for you? How often do you know what is best for you and you betray yourself? And you turn from what is good. It is good news that there is an empty rock of refuge that we turn to because it tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And it's what Paul said, nothing can separate us from God. Even though there's a division between sin and death, nothing can separate us from God. Do you believe that today? That despite your sin and rebellion, nothing will separate you from God. Your sins have been paid for on the cross. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Do you believe nothing can separate you from God? He will never turn his back on you. Some of you live and you've been so wounded. And it's real and it's painful. You've been abused by people you thought loved you to death. And you're thinking, how can I trust anyone? Well, God gave his own son for you. God raised him him from the dead. And you can believe today that Jesus is a friend to traitors. Because when your name was called to come receive the punishment, Jesus said, no, I got this. And he is the one who endured the justice for your sin. He is the one that walked outside of the city and was betrayed on another rock called Golgotha. And if you believe in him today, nothing will separate you from him. Nothing. Let's pray.